0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and our guest on today's show is Tim Brown, the co-founder of Allbirds. Tim sometimes talks about how much he used to dread dinner parties, and especially that moment when the conversation would turn to him and what he was up to. The truth was, Tim wasn't always entirely sure. A former professional football player in New Zealand who went to the 2010 World Cup, by his early 30s, Tim had retired from the game and embarked on what many people, including himself, thought was a highly eccentric calling: creating a pair of beautiful shoes from his country's greatest export, wool. Now, of course, less than a decade later, Tim's Allbird brand is one of the great e-commerce and footwear stories of our time. He's very much the Phil Knight of New Zealand, and when it went public last year, Allbirds was valued at over four billion dollars. Today. Tim tells us why imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, how everyone originally told him the project was doomed to fail, and what it feels like to see Barack Obama wearing a pair of your shoes. Enjoy! But before we begin, I'd love to tell you very briefly about The Gentleman's Journal Shop, our new men's style destination full of the independent brands that we love. You can find it at shop.thegentleman'sjournal.com, that's shop.thegentleman'sjournal.com, Head over there for special, unique releases from a fine curation of brands and plenty of picks and pointers from people in the industry who really ought to know. I'm sure you'll find something you love. Hi, Tim. How are you? Thanks very much for joining
1: us. Oh, no, no. no. Thank you for having us. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to chat with you. So thank you.
0: You're the first person, if you can believe it, that we've had dialing in from San Francisco. We've had a few exotic places, but even for an entrepreneurial podcast like ours, we've never had
1: someone from the cradle of industry and business that is San Francisco. How is it over there? It's sunny and quite lovely, actually, at the moment. The rest of the country is getting snowed on, but California earns its money this time of the year. So I'm, I'm what an honor to be the first San Franciscan guest. And, and just to clarify, it's a New Zealand accent in San Francisco. Uh, with someone that was born in in, in London, so uh, I feel like I, there's a lot of connections to make on this on this chat.
0: Not least, of course, with New Zealand, which I feel like when I read about the Allbirds story and about your story, the place you grew up and the place, yeah, where you hail from is is a really big part of that. What was your kind of memories, if we can dive straight in, of of growing up of New Zealand and particularly of your kind of relationship with nature and its greatest product over there which is wool.
1: I uh, I was born in England moved my father's English from a Kiwi but moved there at a very young age and grew up there and, yeah. I, and I think you know aside from the q sheep jokes here lots of <laughs> sheep I, I, I think you are you're brought up with an affinity for nature and the natural environment and I, I know that sounds a little funny but I mean it's it's been sort of ingrained in me and I think Beyond just wool I think Um, from an early age my mum would teach me to kind of like look at the tags of the products that we were buying and wearing and make sure there wasn't any plastic in them it was like sort of part of her thing and so yeah I definitely think that was that was a backdrop to how I I started to think about the early stages of what All Goods was and but as I've sort of grown up I equally think there's some really good things about New Zealand and their ability to go after things that are really difficult but not take themselves too seriously in the process. Yeah. And I think that, that at the heart of maybe the brand that we've tried to build, I think, is, is that sense of having a laugh in the face of a big challenge.
0: Are you a, a rugby fan as well? Well, there's
1: no choice. There's no, no choice. There's no choice growing up. <laughs> there's no choice. Uh, I, I was actually uh, – football, soccer was my, was my thing growing up. But I can still remember sort of the soccer game going on in the playground and, like, the rugby game was bigger and if the soccer ball kind of got in the way, someone would pick it up and, like, boot it over the fence. So, like, there was a rugby primacy in that, right. like, sort of my growing up. And, yeah, look, I think the All Blacks are an extraordinary story and they've, they, I mean, I think as such a, you know, proud example, I think, of a team that's bigger than any individual and stands for something more than just the results on the field. I think there's a lot to be proud of there.
0: Definitely. The only reason I bring it up is because the All Blacks are playing England at Twickenham on Saturday. I'm going down. And the, and as an example of kind of New Zealand punching above its weight, being the underdog, the kind of reputation they have for such a small nation on the face of it is quite amazing. And I wonder if, if we can spin this back to your kind of story, if you think there's something in the New Zealand and the Kiwi character that allows teams like that to kind of punch well above their weight on the face
1: of it. Well, let us also just acknowledge the women's team that won on the of weekend. Course. I mean, and England was in the in, in the final and that was an extraordinary game. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's something about the sort of the, the pride that people feel for that jersey. And I, I, yeah. I think within the team, and I, I'm sort of, I've known quite a lot about it from my sporting background and from some people that have been there, there's a lot of, Maori culture and the sense of tradition and of some really fundamental ideas that underpin the culture of that team that are really powerful. Um, The sense of whakapapa, the idea that uh, a light shines on you for a period of time and then you, uh, the idea is that you hand that jersey on to someone else. So that jersey that you were wearing, that the All Black Team member is wearing, is not theirs. They are temporarily inheriting it and trying to progress Um, the sense of what it stands for so that they can hand it off to the next person. And so there's a sense of like deep tradition and mythology and an extraordinary sense of culture within that team that I think has allowed it to perform extraordinarily well on the field because it's not just about that. It's a much larger idea that underpins the All Blacks, I think, in my mind.
0: And as you say, your sport was very much football or soccer, as I'm sure they say, in San Francisco. But what was your experience with sport growing up? What did you learn from it? And do you think it's still something that's a big part of your your mind and your mental processes today, that kind of the things you learn on the pitch, so to speak?
1: Yeah, so I had about a. I went to university in America on a uh, soccer scholarship, and then I had about a ten-year uh, professional sporting career that involved getting rejected by Bristol City and Swansea en route to okay. playing um, in the A League, which I'm happy to tell you about in the A League in Australia, and then ultimately being part of this New Zealand team that went to the World Cup in 2010. And on the eve of the next World Cup, there's a lot of like memories coming back from that experience. And yeah. um, it had been the first time in 28 years and it was like a source of great pride and we had an incredibly wonderful team. And then I retired in 2012 and went back to London to business school and started the idea that would become Allbirds. But I uh, took a lot of lessons from that sporting experience to apply to Entrepreneurship, As my co-founder likes to point out, I had to because I had no other work experience. There's a, there a ton of stuff that I took from that and I, I think it's informed the way that I've tried to build a business and, and you know, uh, through almost seven years of doing that now. And what type of player were you on
0: the pitch? What were your kind of attributes and skills?
1: Not a very good one. I <laughs> kick people and I tried really hard to get the nice. ball and give it to the good players. And I tried to be... <laughs> I tried to be an incredible teammate. Well, I mean, and that sounds funny. Like I tried to contribute to the team as yeah. best I possibly could. And I was I was able to kind of I, I make a career out of doing a couple of things really well. And I, I think that's informed how I've thought a lot about, you know, life as a business leader and building a business. It's just, I think... Um, A lot of times I see people trying to do a lot of things very well. Really, I think the secret is just to understand that the the one or two contributions that you can make and double down on being as good as you possibly can be in those areas and uh, make yourself indispensable to the team by contributing with the thing that you do uniquely. And so I think that was really my my career in sport and um, I tried really hard and I was very fit and well prepared and once I got the ball, I tried to give it to someone good as quickly as I possibly could.
0: You were a defensive midfielder, is that right, roughly? That's correct. Yep. Looking at the, uh, I was on the Wikipedia page last night from South Africa 2010, and New Zealand didn't lose a game. You drew three games, which usually can squeak you out of the group stage. In fact, you came above Italy. So clearly, as a defensive midfielder, you were a pretty instrumental player,
1: surely. Well, there's there's two things about that. Some, sometimes uh, New Zealand maybe sort of prides itself in our humility, but <laughs> but um, our, our DVD high, highlight video of that World Cup was called "Undefeated" because we were the only undefeated team in that World Cup. So while I love we didn't that. get out of the pool, Well we didn't get out of the pool, and you can check this, uh, the team that won lost the game, which is very unusual. And so we were the only undefeated team. But we finished above Italy, and it was an extraordinary. But I, I think. You know, 10 days, literally almost about now, we played the final warm-up game against Australia at the MCG, the Melbourne Cricket Ground, and I broke my shoulder. And uh, so I ended up flying back to New Zealand, had surgery, and uh, and I was in the 23 at the World Cup and never got on the field. So I watched that little game um, uh, from wow. the sideline. And the team was extraordinary, and it was fine. And no one remembers that now, but at the time <laughs> it was heartbreaking. So I've been reflecting on that a little bit just uh, as we go into the next this next World Cup coming up. That's amazing.
0: The interesting thing about you, Tim, is that you kind of fell in love with design as a kind of parallel passion to obviously football, which is so interesting because traditionally we don't think about things like art and design being natural bedfellows with kind of athleticism and sporting performance. The kind of people that go for one don't often go for the other. What do you think it was about art and design that, that intrigued you as a young man? You
1: know this sounds a bit funny, but I, that just made sense to me and in in all the ways that like sometimes I played with a lot of people whose first love was football that they just played and it made sense and 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 not always that they were the best oftentimes it it helped a lot but that was their first love that was not my first love the design um, continues to be the thing in my life that I was sort of meant to do and I I found that out at an early age and and it just clicked and again it didn't mean that I was the best but I, I was like this is this will be part of my life in some shape or form, forever. This is just what I was kind of meant to, to do, and it was less the des- the drawing piece of design was more design as a sort of a problem solving tool. But I was at university okay. over over in uh, America, and that just kind of clicked. And I was very fortunate to have that moment. And then the football thing was something I did, and I really enjoyed. And a lot of people said I couldn't, and that <laughs> made me more determined to you know to really be part of something. And so I worked extraordinarily hard at that, and, I, and was a source of great pride. But it was never. It was always it was second in my, in, in my mind a little bit in terms of sort of uh, some of my skills and and so you know I, I think the conversation is opening up a little bit in sport you know I think people prefer to sort of see everyone in a box but it's yeah. never ever that simple and I you know one of the cool things that's happening is people are, are now expressing themselves in the context of of sport to prove you know no one's one dimensional and so I think you yeah, there's I kept a lot of that to the side because you know no one wanted to see you reading a book or thinking that you were anything other than extraordinarily focused on playing sport. And I was, but there was another side. And and so I think we're starting to learn that. I'm sure within the England team and all sorts of other yeah. teams, there's all sorts of other things going on.
0: Definitely a lot of entrepreneurship now with sport, which kind of definitely makes sense. So you, you talk about the loving the kind of problem solving side of things. And I suppose the neat natural conclusion was with your latest success would be that you found a problem, and you found the shoe to solve it, but it probably wasn't quite as clean cut as that. What What was the process for, for dreaming up the original kind of all bird shoe? It wasn't called that then of course, but.
1: No. Well, so, I mean, to give you some sense of the time, and I, I think like the time piece is really important because I probably started working on this 2007, 2008. It was a yeah. curiosity project. There was no business plan um i retired from went to the world cup 2010 retired in 2012 kept working on it went to business school took an entrepreneurship class that was incredibly uh transformative first time i'd really thought about it as a business launched it on kickstarter in 2014 so this is like i mean i'm already sounding like a crazy person by how many prototypes i've been through like hundreds literally yeah and then all birds officially launched on the first of march 2016 so, the, you know, it's the whole 10 years overnight success. This was a bad idea for a long time before it was a good one. And I think the reality is I think most people just don't stick with something long yeah. enough. And I think as a ten, we we have a tendency to sort of massively overestimate what we can do in the, in the short term and underestimate what we can achieve in the long run if we stick with something long enough. And I think that's yeah. really what I did. And the genesis of the idea, and, and this is a little known fact about professional sport, but the main reason people play professional sport is to get free gear. And um, I got lots of it, and (laughs) it was synthetic, made from plastic, and it was covered in logos. And it it was great, but I I saw an opportunity to kind of create something out of natural materials, out of wool, with a different sort of design philosophy that was about taking things away rather than putting them on. And that was really the starting point. And I found a footwear factory online, visited it in my off-season, literally just made this thing happen out of thin air with no other sense that it was a problem in, other than my own. And so that was really the beginning. And and so I think the lesson there is, you know, you can overcomplicate this stuff. And I think yeah. a lot of people talk about doing things, but few actually do. And so if there's one thing I did, which was I kind of got busy with making something.
0: So what was that first prototype like of that kind of first ever shoe? And do you still have it in awful. a museum case somewhere?
1: It was awful. It looked like, I don't know, a shoe from, I don't even know. It was like you just picture something that looked like it was sort of, I don't know, from prehistoric times. And it used to be a source of like a great deal of embarrassment. I was. Right. And and then we had, um, in the end, when Allbirds started and, and, you know, it started to gain traction and we had this, this sort of ex- explosive sort of launch and success. And it's followed now. The company's now a thousand people. um 57 stores big office here in san francisco and portland but around the world and and so we've we've really kind of um, had some some really wonderful times over the last few years since we launched but so i i I actually started to to get extraordinarily proud of some of those beginnings you know you start to realize like those mistakes were actually so i put the shoe in a display case right in our lobby nice Uh, it was the first shoe and then some bastard came off the street and stole it like literally in san francisco just like stole it one day and so it's gone missing so thinking
0: that it might be like the first nike running shoe ever i
1: don't i don't know like i don't know like i really just want to go go back and say come on man this is don't steal this this has got (laughs) no value other than this thing so it doesn't exist anymore but it's in my mind and um look it was probably like a hundred plus prototypes over the years to try and work out how, how to launch that first shoe and we just stuck with it. And I met some really special people along the way that encouraged me and kept going, kept going, kept going. And, and you know, really, quite honestly, that's half the battle.
0: Right. Perseverance. There's obviously a lot of prototypes in there and a lot of time. When did it start to get serious and real? What was the time when you start to have something that actually you think, okay, we can go to the public now and, and start to flog this?
1: I, I, I took this entrepreneurship class with a professor. And um, it was like a 10 week course where I was in a small team and thinking about the idea as a business. And he called me into his office at the end of it. And uh, uh, his name's Carter cast is, and he called me and he goes, I, this is a horrible idea. He goes, I've seen a lot of ideas. This is pretty, this is pretty bad. (laughs) What
0: was the, what was the headline for then? Was it just woolen
1: shoes? Woolen shoes. It was a shoe made of wool. And he's like, look, like that's really hard. You don't know anything about footwear. Making shoes is difficult. Making shoes out of a textile that's never been created before seems extraordinarily hard. But for whatever reason, you seem really determined of everyone in the class. So why don't you put it on Kickstarter or something so it can fail and you can get on with your life because I'm worried otherwise you're going to keep working on this for a long time, make yourself miserable and destitute and whatever. So I like I, I kind of walked out of that office as well. One of those moments in time where you can kind of go left or right. You can kind of go, that guy is an idiot. Or I called his bluff and so I went home for Christmas in New Zealand with $700 and the help of my brother shot a Kickstarter video on a family friend's farm in Pahata just north of Wellington. Yeah. And uh, you can still see it. It's on on the internet. And um, uh, I had six pairs of wool shoes at the time that were prototypes. And um, we, we sold, uh, you know, $120,000 worth of shoes. A thousand shoes was all I could make. I had to stop the campaign after four days and it was the beginning. And that was the jump off the cliff moment. And I think, again, Without the push from that professor, of course, who is now a mentor and a friend and really went out of his way to be so honest because yeah. he saw something. Uh, that was the beginning. And I think oftentimes the easy bit is sort of having an idea. It's much, much harder to put yourself out to the world with the idea that you the world could be quite mean back to you. Right. And I, I you know I sort of did that with the with the feeling that maybe the only person that was going to buy a pair was my mom and in the end it really it proved actually that this idea had had real potential it was it was the it was the catalyst for sort of everything that came from there.
0: I want to ask you about the Kickstarter in a minute because that's a, such a big part of this story but when people tell you know as a character you can either I suppose be someone who goes back into their shell and thinks the other person's right or you can it, you can use that as kind of fuel. I get the sense that you're the latter type maybe.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. I think I've, I've kind of learned that, um, and maybe I, I really learned this through the, the the context of sort of sport, is that you, in life, if you're not seeking feedback, you're dumb. Like, that's just a bad way to live your life. You're not going to grow. You're not. Gonna... But if you listen to all of it, you're even more dumb. Like, you have to <laughs> develop some sort of filter to sort of ignore – and equally improve and adjust but fundamentally do what you want to do the power of like your instinct is sort of something that i think people tamp down and i had this creative vision and there was an idea and i protected it and and not like in a foolhardy way like i didn't you know but i i I believed there was something there and then it, it attracted other good people and there was people that cared and they along the way there was a bunch of times I tried to quit or try and fail and they just sort of said oh keep on going I think there might be something here so those trusted voices became little 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 like points of encouragement and then it becomes a sort of you know public company and it's become this thing and so
0: hmm. I,
1: yeah I, I don't want to sort of overplay it but I, I do think that I'm it, it was always curious to me particularly when I look back on that time there was like experts in the wool industry yeah. and experts in the footwear industry and it almost felt Joe, like they were seeking me out to tell me the idea was bad and it just didn't it like it, it was like I, the so of skepticism the validation of experts was actually quite powerful because i sort of said oh no i, I think that why have they told me they've looked at this and there's no way this would work i just sort of think that this is too obvious and simple of an, an idea so you just got to trust your instinct and you, and you sort of flow through it but i wouldn't say that it was like awesome and like I somehow have some defect in my personality where I go like looking for like criticism and challenge. Like no. it's not it's not that simple.
0: So let's talk about the Kickstarter then, because as wonderful as that must have been, and and you were kind of one of the runaway case studies of success when that website was kind of at its peak. I think it must have been a very daunting prospect to suddenly have to produce those shoes, not least because at the price you were selling them, am I right in thinking that you couldn't actually. Make a profit off them? Is that right?
1: Well, you give or take. I mean, they were there were ninety five dollars. Yeah, ninety five dollars. I mean, I think at the end of the day, like it was just, it was on the surface extraordinarily successful the campaign, yeah. and then oh my gosh, I've got to I've got to go deliver on it. And it it started. it's a funny thing about success. You have a little bit of it, and things get harder. And so that that year afterwards was extraordinarily difficult. And I was in London trying to finish my masters and write a dissertation. And I had a, a tiny little apartment full of wool shoes. Mm. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing? And it was really, really difficult. But you just sort of walk through it. And then at the end of that, I actually ended up meeting my co-founder. And yeah. he had a, a vision for sustainability in the footwear industry. And that was really the beginning of everything. But I, it was extraordinarily difficult. That year was so, so hard. And I was doing customer service. And the factory that I was using in Portugal like mm. shut down. And I had to do like an emergency dash to rescue the wool and like. It was just like when I look back on it, I was like, and I had many moments where I'm like, what am I doing here? This makes no sense at all. Yeah.
0: How old were you at that point?
1: I was 32 and I'd, um, I'd never had a job really give or take outside of kicking a ball around for a living. And I, you know, had had a little bit of financial success on the World Cup and then spent it largely all on going back to school and uh living in london and so i just sort of felt like what am i doing and we go to like my girlfriend at the time we go to like dinner we go out for dinner with friends and it felt like everyone's career was just like on the up and up and they would go around the dinner table and i'd be like please please no one ask me what i'm doing (laughs) please don't do that and then i I, they'd go oh you know what are you you working on i would be like wool shoes i'd like squeak it out so quietly (laughs) and and I, my girlfriend, I come out of the dinner my girlfriend, what are you doing? You're like curled up in a ball. It's like, and, and, um, you know, you just, you lose your confidence. It's like really, really hard. And, um, but it's funny, you just kind of keep chipping away, keep chipping away. And it, I was actually, when I look back, I think I was a lot closer to being, to working it out than I, than I thought at the time, but it's just, right. you have to kind of, you have to kind of just walk through, through those moments, I think a little bit.
0: A big part of that was, as you say, meeting your co-founder now, Joey, so how did you um, how did you get involved with him and how did you find him?
1: My girlfriend had sent an email out when the Kickstarter launched to all their friends yeah. which was was this real like sign of true love and hindsight. <laughs> hey you know you got to support this thing and and uh, her roommate from university she's American her roommate from university uh, had um, her husband was an an early customer and I might like right. to say on the record Joe a, a very difficult customer who, <laughs> who made uh, who complained about just about everything about the experience. Right. Uh, so I, Joey and I had known each other you know, through through our wives and seen each other at weddings and different things. And I got to the end of that that year of the Kickstarter and um, out of nowhere there had been a couple of people that had wanted to sort of invest and thought the idea really had traction. And, and it did. It's like, so a lot of people really sort of had connected with this very simple idea of of what what I was making. And I, I, I phoned him for some advice and um, he just was extraordinary. And... He caught me up a couple of weeks later, and he sort of said, "Well, why don't you come see me? I think there's something here." And so I flew out to San Francisco, where we're now based, and he painted a picture, Joey, of of, of a world that was going to change. That there was going to, he, His vision was that that sustainability was the problem of our generation, and that we were going to need to fundamentally rethink every aspect of the product and services that we use every day. And that that, that change was going to be driven, as so often is the case at the leading edge by the storytellers, the artists, the poets, yeah. the fashion industry. And there was an enormous opportunity to rethink the category anchored in natural materials that for 50 years, for the last 50 years has been making stuff out of cheap synthetic materials derived from plastic. Uh, and that there was um, there was an opportunity to do that differently. And so over 48 hours, we got a little bit drunk and he cooked me, ironically, a lamb stew and we decided um, to... to uh, to found Allbirds together in 2015. And so, and that was the beginning. And uh, we started working out of his mother-in-law's house in San Francisco and we moved here and uh, launched the business with six employees and his dog Walter uh, on the 1st of March, 2016. And that was really the beginning. Um, We lost a little bit of money to do that. And and it was, it didn't get any easier for that point, but for the first time, this the wool shoes had a purpose. It had a larger sense of its place in the world and the the larger challenge. And I, I, hasn't gotten easier for that point but for me that was the greatest gift joey gave me and I, I haven't looked back since then
0: what were the kind of early contenders for other names i know that all birds wasn't necessarily the first option
1: oh gosh it's so difficult to name things it's like yeah. it's so so difficult so i we tried um you know a bunch of different things and i'd had a go at it and just and then we hit on this idea of and i can't really remember some of the others i've it was i think we got down to a short anyway they're so bad i wouldn't even repeat them but then we, we we hit on on all birds and and it was um it was just it just made a ton of sense i mean i think um when people first came to new zealand it was all birds no mammals so it was a deep connection to sort of the provenance of the idea and um, you know when the birds are okay the environment is okay they're like a bellwether for just sort of the health and well-being of the environment so there's something powerful there and so I just so – we sort of loved it from the beginning. And so we, we sort of chose the name as you do and decided to go forward. And then I remember <laughs> my, yeah, my my girlfriend at the time going, okay, so let me get this straight. You're going to launch a shoe made out of wool from sheep um, <laughs> and you're going to call this thing all birds. And I was like – she's like, it makes zero sense. And I was like, it was brilliant. And then the <laughs> other thing, so we, we officially launched it. And, and then I got this like wonderful call from a friend of mine who said, uh, you do realize – Allbirds means kilos of cocaine and rap parlance. Wow. And, you know, and I was like, oh, wow, I feel like we missed that in our, <laughs> in our research. And I remember we chatted with Joey and we just decided, you know what, let's roll with it. And so Allbirds is the name. And um, it's been a wonderful, I think, symbol of sort of just a whole bunch of things that make what we're, we're trying to do, I think, a little bit unique.
0: So let's talk about March the 1st, 2016. Do you remember that day? Was there a kind of a ceremony of, of, of pressing a big red button and then suddenly your website's live? What was it like?
1: No, not really. I, th- I think we just we sort of just we just got on with it, and you know we ended up you know I think selling like a million dollars in the first month and and a uh, million pairs wow. in the first eighteen months, and this thing just sort of connected, and um, it was just a wonderful flurry of creativity and energy and these extraordinary people that decided to take this big gamble and kind of work work with us from the beginning. And um, I have very, very fond memories of that time. And it was the start. And it just very, very quickly we, we realized like this idea was was sort of something that people had been waiting for on some level and this concept of sustainability mm. that even as we went out to raise a little bit of money to fund the business, it sort of people would be like, oh, that's nice. That's really nice. But yeah. um, can we talk about... <laughs> And, you know, fast forward six, seven years now um, from that moment, that seems quite crazy, right? Like I don't think you can almost have a conversation really about the topic of business without that being infused into it or part of at least the consideration. And so it really, um, I think it was just just a really sort of special moment in in the beginning of of sort of building this thing.
0: And you had a lot of, very influential and kind of celebrity admirers early on was that something you you guys actively sought out and kind of managed and promoted in some way or was it fairly organic when they kind of came on board because Barack Obama was wearing
1: them we should say early on wasn't he totally yeah and um and you know DiCaprio and Emma Watson and all these sort of like wonderful things just sort of happened and I'd love to say that was all strategic but it it was just like you know complete um good fortune at one point I got a call from from my mom, and she said, "Oh, you've this is incredible." Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, has just met the Australian Prime Minister. She's been recently elected, and the gift wow. she gave him was a pair of all, all birds And mum, as far as mum was concerned, it was like that was it.
0: That is mega. That's huge.
1: Yeah, and so yeah, it just I, I sort of feel um you know, like I sort of said. Um, there's just a, a lot of a lot of good fortune, but it was just attracted to the, the simplicity of the idea, and that's the irony. Is I think oftentimes too with innovation, you assume it's something new or a business idea is some sort of transformational technology or something that's never been thought yeah. of before. This was this was an age-old fiber that had been kind of forgotten. Shoes are obviously not new, and we just combined yeah. them and with a sense of sort of a larger connection to the world. And, and it's, it's interesting. It's like. In a generation, no one's grown up wanting to be a farmer in New Zealand. And now all of a sudden, that's changing, right? There's this incredible shift in consumer demand for things made from nature. And we're starting to understand through different types of farming and regenerative agriculture that it's one of the single biggest levers that we can pull to reverse the impact of climate change. So there's this like, well, everything ebbs and flows. And, you know, as a New Zealander, to be part of kind of a small part of sort of showing hey this fiber and this material could do extraordinary things and we just sort of left it on the shelf was really incredible and i think that idea became far larger than just myself or joey and and a lot of people started to to sort of connect to it
0: you were 32 and and kind of wondering what on earth you were going to do with your life and a few years later you're uh the head of a company that is being sold around the world selling millions of pairs of shoes and is being worn by as you say, kind of premieres of nations. Psychologically, that's a big leap. I wonder what, what, how you changed as a person and how you kind of handled that roller coaster.
1: Yeah, well, ho- hopefully not at all. I mean, I, I just, I, 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 you know, you're never quite as, and, and sport teachers us this. You're never quite as good as they say, nor as bad. And equally, now as a public company that's gone through a really difficult year, I, I think I hold, I hold that really really tightly. And, and, yeah. um, look, I mean, we work really hard. I think you make your own luck. We work really, really hard. And then we met a moment. And and so we've had a lot of good fortune and tracked a lot of good people. So there's just so many more things that we could be doing better. I just, I sort of feel like we're just like, just starting, you know, and yeah. I, um, I, I feel incredibly fortunate, but, oh gosh, like even leading this company with Joey, we, both of us are doing this in, the, in a public context for the first time we've come the public markets with a different type of business model that sits at the intersection of purpose and profit and a lot of people are questioning at the moment like whether that is the future of business and whether it can be really successful or not there's there's so much to prove you know you've got to keep like and so you have to keep like reframing that and and every time you do you realize like oh gosh i've there's so much more to and and so i think i think that's been really really important and the flip side of it is you don't sort of start thinking like your farts don't smell and (laughs) <laughs> um, and I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think that we've ever done that, I, you know, and and so I, I just think that you've got to, you've got to be extraordinarily humble about the way that you think about that because, um, you know, these things have a habit of kind of moving around a lot, and so you've got to, you, it's very, very, it's the the better strategy is just to kind of keep a straight line through through all of it.
0: Yeah, having never had a, a proper job, as you say, and certainly not an office job. Not that football's not a proper job. I mean, a, a more structured job. How did you know how to lead a team of people? And as the team was growing quickly, how did you kind of learn on the job to be a manager and a boss of people?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, well, I think I'm, I'm still learning. I By far away, I haven't worked that out. I mean, I, I, I think I continue to be extraordinarily curious. Um, and I, so I, I read a lot and, and I try and you know steal from other people that have really worked this out as much as mm. I possibly can. And so that's one part of it. And I've learned this a lot from Joey, who, who's done a really incredible job of like seeking people out for advice and guidance and mentorship, yeah. which is sort of something I have to, you have to learn. I think Joey in the early days, we, you know, we'd be discussing one thing that we might want to do and he'd be like, well, who, you know, not exactly these words, but it'd be kind of like, well, who's the best in the world at that? Let's go ask them. And lo and behold, like a lot of times, Joe, like when you ask people for help, they're, they're really quite willing to give it to you. And so- yeah. I think I've learned I've the power of doing that. And then the other piece of it is, and I think I've learned this from sports, there's is, is really, is a couple of things that I did really well as a, as a sports person and I, I did everything. I, you know, I built a career on those two things and then I think as a, as a business leader, I try to be really, really honest about what I can contribute and what I'm good at and then fill the gaps of all the other things. And I think a lot of times you don't really do that. You know, you tend to try to want to show up in all sorts of areas. And, and, and I just try to be really, really honest, as has Joey. And I think once you, st- once that's your starting point, it allows you to kind of go and seek the gaps that you have. And it, it allows you, I think, to lead a lot more confidently because you're not trying to, to be a master of something you know nothing about.
0: It's taking the ego out of it, really. And once you kind of let yourself do that, it's so much easier to, to say, oh, I actually don't know, or I'm not sure, or, I'm not confident on this.
1: <laughs> yeah, how, how impressive, how, I, mean, the, I mean, it's the most confident thing in the world yeah. to actually say that. And then, and then what you find yourself, the next step of that, Joe, is like even if you don't have to say that out loud, you sort of go, well, what's, what's the thing I really don't understand? Like how many times yeah. have you been in meetings as acronyms or you're like what's the essential question here that, you know, and, and oftentimes it's the question that people just haven't, don't have the courage to ask. Yeah. So I think there's a, there can be like a lot of power in that. And I, when I think about even sort of at the beginnings of the genesis of Allbirds, it was it was a lot of anchoring in those really, really simple, essential questions that maybe people had overlooked. There's power in that.
0: Imitation, I suppose, is, is a, they often say, the, the best form of flattery. And Allbirds has had over the years many kind of copycats. I wonder how you guys deal with that and how you feel about it. And if you do treat it like a compliment or is it just a bit of a nuisance?
1: Oh no it's totally a compliment um, yeah I, I think you know whether you like it or not you're like it when you go into business you're an, you're in an extraordinary like sort of competitive context and situation and so what we sort of found is that it was quite easy to copy the look of our products much more difficult to capture the feel of them because mm. of the work that we were doing and even harder again to capture the true essence of the idea that we were labeling every product that we made with the kilograms of carbon emitted in its production. That there was so much depth to what we were doing that the copycats actually became kind of almost uh, reinforced our sort of competitive moat, if you could steal a business term. And so, yeah. I, you know, I actually they became like sources of a great deal of like confidence for us, I think. And so that's just, I think, part of it. When you, when you have a little bit of success, people are going to kind of come and try and replicate what you're doing. And, and I think you can use that to sort of, power the next the fact that you've got to keep improving you've got to keep getting better
0: footwear is such a um a trend-led thing and we can all think of kind of companies that i guess caught the zeitgeist for a bit and then faded away a little bit how do you guys make sure you're on top of that and, and staying kind of fresh
1: i think um it starts with the idea that we were we were building a, a brand hmm. before we were building a product yeah and so i think all birds hopefully becomes a symbol and an enduring sense of, you know, one idea that's been there from the beginning, um, that of supernatural comfort and the idea that we were going to make super products derived from natural material innovation that felt incredibly good. Um, But not just that, but also allowed you to feel good about your sort of place in the world. And that's been the North Star for the brand from the beginning. And that will necessarily manifest itself in products Um, But over time, those will necessarily change. And so I think the best and most enduring brands and businesses have an ability to almost internally innovate and create better solutions than the one they had prior. And if they do it before anyone else can, and hopefully, and again, we're very early, you know, there is enough of that in the DNA that you can create something that that we talk about a lot, you know, the, the idea of being a hundred year brand. Um, yeah. so what would that look like? And so it's never going to get there with one style. It needs to be a larger idea, and a sense of um, that idea's place in the world and how it can contribute. And so I think we toggle a lot between the short-term actions and the, the longer-term vision. It was one of the best things we ever did in the founding of the business. We we did three things. We wrote a mission statement, a singular statement of like why we existed. We defined three, although we now have four values around like how we're going to do the work. And then we wrote this vision. 10 years in the future, this sort of story of what it would be like to work at a hypothetical all-birds office in 2025, yeah. and we share it with everyone. That, And I think oftentimes everyone's willing to do the work at the coalface on the, on a day-to-day basis. Not often you give yourself permission and then formally imagine what the future is, and, and you've got to do both of those things, I think, to sort of sustain. And once you do that, like the idea of taking risks and thinking with a much more longer-term sort of time frame. Becomes a lot more possible, and I think you need both of those types of mentalities to to, to build something that's enduring. And again, I don't think we have all the answers. We're tr- we're very early. We've got to prove that, but that's sort of how we're thinking
0: about it. What is your mission statement? Can you sh- is it a single line you can kind of share?
1: Yeah, better things in a better way. It's that simple, and it is. Uh, what I love about that is it's not about perfect or great or good. Yeah, it's that it's imbued with that idea of getting a little bit better. And and again, I think that compounds. I've taken that from sport. You show up, you train, you work at whatever little part of it. Oftentimes you don't see the improvement, but if you stick with it, you know, lo and behold, you can develop confidence or even excellence in something over a sustained period of working at it. And um, along the way, you'll lose a couple of games. Um, <laughs> but in the fullness of time, the best teams win the season. And so I think that work is, is sort of something that we, I think is in the DNA of our business. And so yeah. – We've, you know, we've really just tried to keep being a little bit better and, and we've come a long way in a, in a short space of time. And I think um, there's also confidence and humility, uh, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. And I think yeah. we've got a long way to go, but I equally think we're very, very, very clear about the contribution we can make.
0: I love that better things in a better way. That kind of sums it all up. I, I think there's so many things in the brand that, that people buy into. And I wonder when you speak to um, your customers, what what's if they had to put their finger on one reason why they buy it is it comfort is it aesthetics is it sustainability is it something else those are the kind of three things to me that jump out
1: yeah well no I appreciate that I, I mean I think let's be really clear mm-hmm. people don't buy sustainable products they buy great ones right but I, I, I'm convinced increasingly that a product can't lay claim to being great unless it's on the path or deeply thinking about the topic of sustainability yeah. in this mom- in this moment but at the end of the day, what we're focused on in the sense of comfort is really about an improved consumer experience. And we've got lifestyle products and we've got some performance products that natural materials make better performance products. That's the, like the starting point. Yeah. And nature is maybe the greatest source of innovation that we have. And so it's all about that experience. And so I think you have to start with with that. And I think sometimes when people hear sustainability, they think, more expensive and less good Um, in the context of buying stuff. There's a deep connection to the idea of sustainability and of thinking more thoughtfully about how we consume. But, you know, if you think about it, Joe, like the last time you went to the checkout and bought something, was that a factor in your purchase decision? Probably not. And so we're in this like really interesting moment where systems and frameworks and understanding, that's why like, you know, calories is a really interesting example. You know, no one really knows what a calorie is. Probably it, it doesn't represent the whole articulation of what a healthy diet is. No. Um, but, you know, you go into McDonald's now and you'll see calories on, on a menu and you probably on some level know you probably don't want to go eat there every day and there's a couple of thousand calories. There's, there's some sort of benchmark for how you should, this all adds yeah. up. The same way that we think about kind of carbon on our products. So I think we're in the early chapters of working this out, but fundamentally we're in the, in the business of making better products um, and that's a backdrop to our understanding and it drives our innovation and it drives our team but it's not what people are, are purchasing
0: so i wonder now if you've got kind of any advice for people who might be listening who maybe have have left one career to go to another or just starting out or maybe feel like their best days are behind them even and that there's no chance of being entrepreneurial what would you say to to 32 year old tim who's sitting at that dinner party and thinking please don't Ask me what I'm doing because I'm not sure I can tell you. What's the kind of advice to that person?
1: Well, I'd just say generally and particularly in this moment, I'd just say be kind to yourself. That's what i go back and say. I'd just be like, hey, you know what? It's, just, it's, it's all good. You just keep going. It's fine. And just chill out a little bit. And maybe get out of the fetal position and maybe enjoy this dinner a little bit more. And maybe there's a lot of people there that are that are in outwardly very successful corporate context or whatever they were doing and maybe they they're a little they wish that they, they could do it and maybe they see you having the courage to have a go and, and yeah. you know so there's an element of that I think a little bit and I think if I'm I just think I went and did it and I had a lot of good fortune I had I had some space and time in the context of sport to do that and I had a lot of family support that, you know people that really cared about me that sort of said oh keep on going this is there's something to this so I, I was very fortunate in that regard but I I do think there's something about putting things out into the world I would sort of say on a personal level too, you kind of know deep down in your gut like whether you're working on something that matters and you're working with people that care about you. And so if that's not the case, then you should probably, to the best of your ability, endeavour to sort of shift that. And I, I think um, there is it, sometimes that can be really difficult and scary. But I've, I've usually sort of found like when you when you trust your instinct deep down, usually good things will come from it. And so I, I just think sometimes you just got to go. And I feel like. In those moments that that I did, and I'm I, good stuffs come from it. You
0: spoke briefly about there being a huge amount of moments when you really did want to quit and you weren't sure whether you were going to keep going. Do you ever think about little turning points like that and wonder what you'd be doing now if you'd have quit in 2012, 2013, 14? Do you think about that kind of stuff? The parallel, Tim.
1: Oh yeah, of course. You know, um, of course you do. Like, I mean, I think even in the context of my. Like, my first professional contract with, with, was with the Newcastle Jets. Just after I'd, I'd tried, I'd always dreamed of playing in, in, in the UK, and it hadn't worked out. And so um, Bristol City and, and Swansea had sort of said thank you, but no thank you, and um, and it was it was pretty pretty tough. And and I come back to New Zealand, and I, I really was sort of thinking it was the end. And then I, I got a Australia was playing a, a game, a friendly in Brisbane, and there was a, a defender who'd played for Newcastle United in the Premier League called Craig Moore who'd come back to go to, um, to play in this game. And he'd gone to the horse races and got a little bit drunk. And so uh, he, he got pulled out of the squad. And so they called up a guy called Jade North from the Newcastle Jets. And I'd been on trial there, and they didn't really have a place for me. And Jade North got called up, and so I got a six-day contract. That was the beginning. And I played one game against the Melbourne Victory, and that was, if I hadn't played well in that game, I and I wasn't really prepared, I wasn't much fit. Yeah, there's all these moments, right? Like, you know, I got this uh, advice actually from Conrad Smith, who was a friend of mine, who was a who's a center who played for the All Blacks. You know, so life is a, a series, a series yeah. of these little little moments, these door moments. And sometimes you know about these moments in advance, and you can feel them. Other times you don't. Um, you take advantage of them, and you can kind of go on to the next chapter in a different way. So, yeah, I, I think some of those moments I've just I've, I've been really fortunate. But you know, you've got to kind of seize them as well. And um, there's there's been a bunch of those had you gone left or right or approached a little bit differently. But that's that's part of the journey. That's part of the the fun.
0: Well, I'm very glad you didn't quit. Um, It's been amazing and it's a very inspirational story and even more inspirational because of how you seem to approach it on your kind of humility and confidence. I love that combination. I'm going to now write that on a wall somewhere and say that's the kind of guiding mantra. But Tim, thank you so much for coming. And I wish we had more time. And I wish I was in San Francisco because it's horrible here.
1: Come and see us. I, I took from that that you're going to like graffiti that slogan on a, on a toilet bathroom door somewhere.
0: Yeah, it did sound like that. Maybe maybe a pinball or something.
1: It's such a pleasure to chat with you, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Tim.
0: Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.